You're listening to audio from Grace Hills Church in Aliso Viejo, California. For more information, visit us online at gracehills.com. Well, good morning, Grace Hills. It is a good morning. My name is Simon. If you haven't met me, I'd love to meet you at some point. He is risen. I got a clap out of that. That was good. I like that. If you are new here and are not familiar with that phrase, um, you're not in a cult. It's okay. The vats of Kool-Aid are someplace else. We don't have those out. Uh, But you may wonder, why do we say that? Why is that so important? Why do we say that at Easter? Well, there's a big, there's a reason why. It's, It's the Christian's victory cry. That's really what it is. It's victory over sin. It's victory over death. It's being reunited with the Father. It's what gives us hope today and for the days that follow an eternity with God for forever. That's what that is. And if Resurrection Sunday didn't happen, we'd have none of it. It it would be all for naught. See, our God is a God who transforms. That's what we were seeing in this video, that there are lives that have been transformed because of what God has done. He changes us. He makes us different. We were one thing. He steps in, and now we're something different. That is what God does. You're going to see a theme today. You've already kind of started seeing it. It's the idea of, I was, but God, and now I am. That's the reality of what's going on. And the passage that we're going to read today does the exact same thing, and it follows the same model. Now, the passage we're going to read in the original Greek, it's one giant 10-verse run-on sentence. It doesn't, it's just like Paul can't seem to get his breath, and he goes and he goes and he goes because he's so excited about what he has to say to these individuals, these people in Ephesus, that it's the crux of who they are, it's where they were, what God did, who they are now, and he's so excited, he just can't stop talking. My hope and my prayer today is that you're that excited today as well as you realize who you were, what God's done, and what he's turning you into. And if not, that maybe today be the first day that you would even understand that. So here's what I want to do. I want to open up God's word because it's the only thing that has truth, the only thing that has power. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, if you're new and you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We have Bibles in the seats in front of you. They're brand new. If you don't have a Bible... You can take that, keep that. We want you to have the word of God so you can continually have God's truth at your fingertips. Or if you want, you can just watch on the screen. The words will be up there. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me go ahead and pray, and we'll jump into this passage. Jesus, thank you so much for today. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for Resurrection Sunday. Thank you for being a God who has conquered death. Thank you for the life that you give your people. Lord Jesus, for my brothers and sisters who love you today, I ask that they would be encouraged. They would be filled with the knowledge and understanding of who you are and what you've done. For those that don't know you that are here today, Lord, that maybe stumbled in or got asked by a friend to come, I ask that they would hear the truth today and that you would open their eyes and their hearts to the truth of who you are, what you've done, and how you've changed the course of history. Holy Spirit, is there anything in these words that I've written down that are not from you? I ask that you take them away. And if there's anything that you need me to say, I ask that I would say that with boldness and confidence, knowing that you are the one who's brought a message today. We love you. Pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. You ever thought about what makes good news good? You ever kind of think about that? Like, why is good news good? See, if you don't understand the bad news, if you don't have that contrast, good news is just, well, news. And so if you understand what could have been, or what was avoided, or what was taken care of for you, that good news can fall flat very often. We need contrast in life to show the differences of what's going on. And that's exactly what Paul, the writer of this particular letter, to these men and women in the city of Ephesus is trying to communicate, that very idea. And so he has to start with the bad news so he can understand the goodness and the reality of God. So my first point is I was. That's verses one through three. Who we are before Christ. Paul wants us to understand our old state and and be be clear. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to men and women that have placed their life in the hope of Jesus Christ. But he needs to remind them of where they came from. They need to be reminded of what God has done in their lives, who they were before Jesus. Now, I'll be honest, some of the words that are used are going to come across as harsh. They may feel a little prickly as you hear them, and you may not like them. But I want you to hang in there because there is hope at the end. And so he uses terms like, you were dead. The reality of sin is that there's not just a physical death that comes, and we've all experienced that at some level by those we love or where we are in life, that death, physical death is coming. But that is just an example of the real problem, which is spiritual death. There's a spiritual death that came that we exist in right now. God is life. He is the giver and sustainer of life. And when we are disconnected from him, we are called spiritually dead. And what it's saying when it comes to our salvation, any hope that we have is that we can't do anything. We can't save ourselves. That's the idea. It doesn't take a genius to know that dead people don't do things, right? They they don't. They can't. They have no ability. They have no power in and of themselves. And so we find ourselves from the beginning of this passage in a very desperate spot. And it tells us what created death and what created death was sin. And that's a word that we don't like to throw around today. It's a harsh word. It makes people feel weird. Like, I don't know what it means, but I don't like it. It just seems mean and unkind and unloving. Well, let me define what sin is. Sin 
is either not doing what you've been told to do or doing what you haven't been told to do primarily from God. That's what sin is. So there's sins of omission, so I admit doing something that I should do, or sins of commission as I commit something that I shouldn't do. That's all that sin is. And it's all connected to God. And if God is perfect, if he is all-knowing, then what he says is good and what he says is evil is right. And when we do the opposite of that, we then step into a place where we take authority over God and say, you're wrong, I'm right. And that's sin. And the whole world is doomed because of sin and the effects. Now, the enemy of God is the devil. He is running amok. I mean, turn on the news, look at a paper when you're in the grocery store, you see the articles, it's not good. It feels really bad. And that thing that you're feeling that's really bad is sin. You're sensing and feeling the, the, the reality that sin is in this world and it's ruining everything. And so as we follow the world, we don't have a choice. Either you follow God or you follow the enemy. You're like, well, that's not right. It's like being in a rushing river. You can't stop. You get swept up with it. And the devil is moving strong and hard in a direction and we can get stuck in that current. And that's what Paul is trying to say. That this world is telling us a bunch of things all the time, right? The world's always speaking at us. It says things like, believe in yourself, follow your heart, chase your arrow, you be you. And the enemy is saying, yeah, do that. Please do that. It's the very thing that has caused the very problem that we have today. And the enemy wants you to continue down that road of destruction and death and separation from the God of the universe. That's what he wants. See, the problem is that as we live in this way, we are considered sons and daughters of disobedience. And if we are disobedient and we have sin in our life, Romans 6, 23 tells us the wages of sin is death. It says that now we're under the wrath of God. We're under his punishment. That there will come a day where we will stand before the maker of the universe and give an account for everything we've ever done in our life. Some of you are like, I don't care. Some of you are like, I don't look forward to that day. But you might be thinking, you know, why? Why has God got to do that? Well, God is just. He's perfectly just in every way. He's like a good judge. If there was a crime that took place and people were murdered and killed and horrible atrocities were done and that person went before a judge and that judge said, well, you probably just had a bad day. It might have been some bad pizza. Maybe don't do it again or do it again. Whatever you want. Have a nice day. We would be outraged. We would think this is injustice. How could this happen? And that's who God is, a perfect and just God. Now you might be saying, Simon, I think you're, you're, you're blowing this out of proportion. Uh, it's not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. I'm a nice guy. I'm a nice lady. I do good things. I, I bring food to my neighbor across the street. I, I walked someone across the street yesterday. I'm a really great person. I pay my taxes. I don't kill anybody. Well, let me give you a picture. I want to paint a picture that was impactful to me. And every time I do it, I dislike it because it, it highlights how wicked and evil I really am. Let's say this. Let's say that this little pebble represents our sin. Just one. It's so small. It's so tiny. It's not a big deal. It's just a little sin. It doesn't, doesn't mean that much. Well, let's say that this 
wheelbarrow, this represents my life. And so maybe I, maybe I said some harsh things to someone at work. Wasn't that big of a deal? Maybe I was disrespectful to my wife and my kids. I got three kids, so I got like that. Okay, so there's three of them. <laughs> Maybe I was speaking gossip about someone that I had no business speaking about. Maybe uh, I should have done something that was kind and helpful and I had the ability and I didn't do it. And maybe I just am a rude, mean, and angry person. But here's the thing. Let's say, uh, I'll throw this out because I think I'm a pretty horrible person. I sin five times a day having thoughts and ideas of things that I shouldn't have, not doing what I should do. Five times a day, you're like, well, I'm better than you. Okay, you can use three. I'll use five. Or maybe you're like, well, I'm way worse than you. You can use ten, whatever number you want. Multiply that out. So if I start multiplying that out, that's 35 sins a day. A week. And if I multiply that out, that's 1,960 sins a year. Well, I'm, I'm not that young, but I'm not that old. This is what my sin looks like. I have a lot of sin in my life. I am 47 years old. And that sin just keeps piling up and piling up. Some days are better, some days are worse. And you know what I'm coming to find? This is getting heavy and this is getting full. And that every time I don't follow God and I don't listen to God, this is what my sin looks like. 92,120 sins. I did the math. I had my kids help me count it out. This sucks. <laughs> this is my life. This is who I am. This is sin in the eyes of a holy and just and perfect God. We don't think of our sin this way, do we? We don't think of the mountain of sin that we have compiled over the years. Now think about this. We each have a wheelbarrow. What if we all had all of our wheelbarrow full of rocks in this room? What about California? What about the world? The mountain of rocks is countless. How would you respond to someone that treated you that way? How would you respond if this was your child or someone has wronged you over and over and over again? Someone that you know. Thousands upon thousands of sin constantly slapping you in the face. Now think of it being the creator of the universe who gave you life, who gave you breath, who sustains all things, who blesses you and you don't deserve it. We are slapping God in the face every time. So what should he do? Well, the bad news is it shows who we are and what we've done and what we deserve. Separation from God, his judgment, his punishment, See, nothing but death flows from this. Nothing but death. We would be very sad if this was the end of the passage. If this is the end of the Bible. If this is the end of the story. And we'd all walk out depressed with no hope whatsoever. But the good news is, is that's the bad news. 
So now we understand the problem. We under, understand the dilemma before us, right? Well, we have this great verse, but God, but God. Now we get to the good news. Now we get to the good stuff of why this is good. One of the best lines in the Bible is, but God. It's not about me. It's not how I can do good deeds. It's not how I can defy the odds, pull up my bootstraps, solve the problem, fix it on my own. It is namely and solely God and what he has done and what he is doing. Now it says that this is all based out of mercy. A rich mercy. So what is mercy? Not getting what we deserve. It's like getting pulled over by a cop. He's like, ah, eh, go on your way. We deserve a ticket. He's like, no, it's cool. As God looks at this pile, he says, I'm going to extend mercy. He could have thrown the book at us. He could have charged us, but he's not. Well, you have to ask the question, why would a God that's been so offended be willing to extend mercy to any of us? Why would he do that? It tells us love. And not just love, but the greatest love the world has ever seen. A love for one that has created us and made us and knows us, who has made us in his very image. He is always seen and known as a good and loving father who cares for his children. That's who God is. And if God is truly perfect, then only God can love perfectly. And his love cannot be undone by anything else in the world. There is no greater love than the love of God. It's his character. It's his nature. It's what makes him so good and perfect in every way. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. Think about this. His love is not blind. If you didn't have, if you had ignorance in your life, you wouldn't know about all this sin, right? You're like, well, I love you. And then you like get married. You're like, whoa, I didn't know that. But the reality is that God isn't blind. He's all knowing. He sees this. Maybe you just see the top of the pile. He sees every single rock and he can name every single one because he knows all about it. What does that do to that love? It makes that love that much more amazing and that much more powerful that he sees it and yet he still loves me and he still extends mercy to me. That's crazy that that's the God that we worship, the God that we know. It's insanity that he would even do that. It's evidence of his love when we see this. But here's the thing. Love is an action. It has something attached to it. For this mercy to happen, he had to give up something for us. It cost God something to give mercy. He doesn't brush it under the table. It doesn't just go away. It says, while we were dead in our sins to God, he makes us alive. Well, how can he do that? Well, this life has to come from someone. And that someone is Jesus. The reason that we're here today, the reason that we celebrate the life that we even have. And that came through Jesus. So that means that it costs God, his perfect son, to extend mercy to you so you could have your sins forgiven. Sin must be dealt with. 
it doesn't just go away. It has to be punished. It has to be paid for. Jesus took my sins. Jesus took your sins, your past sins, your present sins, and this is the one that blows me away. The sins that I haven't even thought about sinning on yet, he died for those too. In 10 years, I got a really good sin that I'm about to do. I don't even know what it is. It's gonna be good, but he died for that too. That's mind-blowing that that's what the sacrifice of Christ did. God had to pour out his wrath on sin, and Jesus took it so you wouldn't have to. He became a substitution, a perfect substitution in every single way. And he died in your place that I will take your sin. I will take all that I'll put it on myself. I will go to the cross and not just yours, not just mine, but the sins of the entire world. And if you have placed your life in the life of Jesus, then your sins are covered and paid for and that gives you life. See, in my analogy, Jesus becomes the wheelbarrow for us. Could you imagine trying to go through life wheeling this thing around? Stairs are out of the question. We're done with stairs. Like, those no longer happens. We're all just flat earthers. And so the reality is, is that all we have is this. I couldn't, if I wanted to lift this up a mountain, I couldn't do it. And so it limits who I am. There's a pressure, there's a weight, there is shame, there is guilt to the sins that happen. And what Jesus says is, is put it all in my wheelbarrow and I will take it. And he picks it up and he rolls it away. The Bible would tell us as far as the east is from the west, so are our sins forgiven. When he died for those sins, they're gone, they're paid for, they're good. And in this moment, he transforms you where we only had death before. Now something different will flow out of our life. My third final point, now I am, verses six through 10, our new identity in Jesus Christ. We were once dead and life comes from the life of Christ. But you may say, he died. Yes, yes he did. But the power of God rose him from the grave three days later. That's what we're celebrating today. This is Easter. He conquered sin and the effects of sin and what it has on us. He conquered death and the grip that it had on us and how we can now have hope. See, if our life is hidden in the life of Christ, that means our sin has been paid for. So if our life's in Jesus and he took the sins and he died on the cross, he absorbed the wrath. He took the thing that we had. If our life is in Jesus, then that means that he lived the life we couldn't give. And then he also lived the death that we deserved. And so that's been fulfilled as well. And that he rose again, meaning this, that we, if our life is hidden in Christ, it means that we are now what? alive again. If he stayed dead, we don't have anything. We don't have any hope if he stayed dead because our life is his and it was satisfied by God and he was, he was good with the sacrifice. We can now be before the Lord for forever. And he also gives us his righteousness. So now we can live a life that brings God glory in everything. That's the beauty of it. See, the Bible would say that we are now raised up with him, that we are alive, seated with him, that God has poured out his great riches upon us and his kindness upon us. That's what he's done. 
And we have a new position. We're different. We don't have the same identity. Our old identity was that we were enemies of God. We were children of wrath, children of disobedience. But now it says we have a new identity, that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God with all the rights and all the privileges that come from that, that we have access in a way that we never had access before, that we get to exist in the family of God with God being our good and heavenly father. Paul wants to make sure that we understand this. And he says this in verse eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's the gift of God. See, grace is different than mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. So I should have got a ticket. I didn't get a ticket. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. It's getting pulled over, not getting a ticket, and then him handing you $100. I did not earn that $100. I should be giving the government $100 at least for my speeding ticket. See, that's the difference. So now we have even more. Not only is our sins forgiven, we're connected to God. We are with him for eternity, for forever. And you say, how can I have this gift? I've never heard of this gift. How do I receive this gift? It is only by faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior that we can have this gift, this life. It's not by your works. It's not by your good deeds. The Bible would say that your deeds are as filthy rags before the Lord. We don't stand in front of a holy God and think that we have anything good going for us. So it can't be our doing. It can't be our ability. It can't be because I'm smart or I'm wise or I live here or I have this privilege or that privilege. None of that. Romans is a letter that Paul wrote. If you confess with your mouth and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. It's, it's a powerful statement because what we have is this very simplistic answer to a very complicated issue, isn't it? And that's the point. It's simplistic because it's not our doing. It's somebody else's doing. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. That if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is Savior, that he is God, that he is perfect, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we too shall have that life. Our sins will be removed, they'll be taken away, and we can live the life we were always meant to live. In a few minutes, I'm going to baptize four people in this tank. Uh, Yes, amen. That is what they're proclaiming. Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. They have made that decision. They have placed their life in his life and they're going through a symbolic where they're going to say, I want the world to know that I love and follow Jesus with all of my heart. And these symbols take place to show that there's three stages of baptism and you're going to see them in a second. We're going to, they're going to stand in the tank. This is their old life represented. When we lower them into the water, it represents what? Their death to their old life. And when they come out, it's the new life that they have in Christ. That's who they are now. I don't know where a lot of you are. A lot of new faces here. I'm so glad you came. I'm so excited to see you all. 
And maybe this is the first time you've heard the message this way. I'll tell you this. I prayed for my dad for 23 years to come to know Jesus. And it was this analogy was the one that did it. I don't know if that's going to do anything for anyone today, but I felt it fitting that I would share this analogy today so you would see a symbolic picture of your sin and a God that has forgiven you in such great and mighty ways because he loves you and has given you grace and has given you mercy. And if you want to do that, this is the best part. You could do that right now in your seat, sitting where you are. The questions that I'm going to ask these individuals are the same questions that you can ask yourself right now. Do I believe that Jesus is God? Do I believe that he lived a perfect life and took my place on the cross? Do I believe he died for my sins, satisfying the wrath of God? Do I believe he rose again three days later, conquering sin and conquering death? And if I place my life in allegiance to him, that he is now my Lord and Savior, that he has control over my life, if you can answer yes to all those questions, you're saved. And I would love to talk with you. David would love to talk to you. Justin would love to talk to you. Any of the elders, anyone on staff would love to talk with you about that. I would, I would encourage you, write on your, on your bulletin, think, I think I accepted Christ. And then say, can I talk to someone? And I will call you. Literally, I will call you. I would love to talk with you more about that. Or you can find us during the Easter egg and say, hey, I, wanna, I think I just did this thing. Can we talk? I'd love to have that conversation with you because the reason that we have joy today, the reason that we have hope for tomorrow and let, it feels very hard to have hope today doesn't it the world that we live in as it seems to be falling apart and unraveling we can have hope because our hope goes far beyond today and tomorrow it goes on for eternity where all sin will be fully vanquished from the earth and we will stand with our father and our savior jesus and worship him for forever that is the hope that we have that's why we make such a big deal about Jesus all the time. And every week we come here, we open God's word. We learn about the God that loves. We learn about the Savior who sacrificed. And we hold that up to our lives and see how we do not deserve it. We did not earn it. But yet his grace and mercy has showered us with it. And we celebrate that. I'd love to have you join us on Sundays to learn more about this Jesus. See, when the stone was rolled away from that tomb, like in that picture, Jesus took our stones away. He took our sins away. If we have placed our life in his, because he has risen. Let's pray.